Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes 5, working our way through uh, the Son of David's book. Um, I do hold to Solomon authorship. So we are looking at the biography of David in the morning and one of the great works of his son in, in the evening. At the rate we're going through 1 Samuel, the life of David, we could probably do all the writings of Solomon by the time we get done, done with it. So we'll have to do all the Proverbs, all Ecclesiastes, all the Song of Solomon and, and the few Psalms he has. Um, and by then, if, I'm, if you all haven't gotten rid of me then, uh, we would really accomplish something. But Ecclesiastes chapter 5, uh, we want to read the first seven verses of, of this chapter. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for, for God's word. Solomon writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you owe, or you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, we ask as always you'd open our hearts that we would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it. Our, our ears that we would hear and heed your word. Our eyes that we would see your glory raised from the dead. And our mouths that we would speak the hope that is within us. And our hands and our feet that we are transformed by the renewal of your word, the power of your gospel, and the work of your spirit. May I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son we pray. Amen. Are you more of a dog person or a cat person? Don't answer, don't answer that because the right answer is dog. Moving on. I, I am more of a of, of a dog person because I think cats are a bit stuck up. Don't you agree? Of course you agree, right? They're 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 terrible creatures uh, under the judgment of God, and they won't be in heaven. Now that I have your attention, <laughs> right? And we're going to test to see how easily you could be offended. Now, <laughs> cat people are like, <laughs> you're going to storm the front here. Um, whether or not you're a dog person or a cat person, I, I frankly couldn't, couldn't really care less. Um, but uh, I grew up a, a cat person, then I saw the light and realized that, that dogs are, are better. Actually, if I had my choice, I would just get a turtle, just to be quite honest with you. I've always wanted a turtle. I've never had a turtle, but I want a turtle. Um, but we have enough animals in our house. If you would like an animal from our house, you know, the price could be right. The price being free. Um, I had a tendency to say any of that stuff. You guys have just inspired me. Uh, but I am more of a dog person. But I came across the following quote that I think helps us understand or at least set up uh, this, this passage. I, I'm not familiar with the author, but the book is called Cat and Dog Theology. Just the title alone makes me want to read it. It could be heretical. I don't know. I'm just telling you what the title of the book is. It argues, quote, a dog says, you pet me, you feed me. You shelter me and love me. You must be God. A cat, on the other hand, says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me. 
I must be God. Again, why dogs are better than cats. Well, the point of the quote, and I believe the point of the book, and I haven't read the book, so I could be wrong in this, is to emphasize the difference between a, a, a Christ-centered worship and a, and a self-centered worship. And the truth is, for the last several decades, American evangelicals have focused more on the me-centered approach of, of worship than, than the Christ approach of worship. Just consider a lot of the debates we've had in-house over the last several decades. Uh, perhaps the most prominent would be that of music, worship styles, and, and worship setting, and everything like that. that, that maybe we, we say to ourselves, self, the, 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 the theology could be sound, the people could be loving, the outreach could, could be exactly what it should be, but the music will keep me from worshiping there. The style of music is, is what, what will do, do me in. It can't be a true church unless they're singing this style from this generation or whatever it, it, it might be. And what you have in that, among other examples that we could easily give, is, is the tendency we have as Americans to think as consumers rather than worshipers. And what we have discovered over these years is that self-centered theology and worship stirs pride and division. When our theology of God and worship are, are wrong, our religion, if I could use the word, becomes meaningless. Thus, in our pursuit of meaning and value, it is imperative we make worship, not just any worship, but right worship that is Christ-centered a high priority. What we have in these seven verses is really a setup for, for the sort of worship God honors and the sort of worship God expects of us. Just three points we see in this text. Obviously, there are many more we could look at. The first is, in a word, reverence. We see it here in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice or fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. From the beginning, the critic warns of dishonor when approaching worship. And let us avoid turning worship into a duty rather than a delight or a scheduled event rather than the desire of our hearts. One of the things that we should note considering the historical context of this is that, uh, and I, I do believe in, in Solomon authorship, that what we have by this point is Solomon's grand temple. It's the grandest temple that Israel had ever had. We, we have testimony of those who witnessed both the first temple under Solomon and the second temple under Zerubbabel, which would eventually be uh, renovated under Herod the so-called Great. But everything about the architecture of Solomon's temple was driven to emphasize that it was a place of worship. And by the way, we could just add this as a footnote. Um, Architecture now, uh, Western uh, religious architecture, and you would say Eastern, Middle Eastern architecture as well, are, are, are designed a certain way for the purpose of worship. Have you ever noticed that if you're in the West, churches all look essentially the same? Now, now how they go about it may be different, but they've all got steeples. Now, what's the point of a steeple? The point up. That's the only thing the steeple does. It doesn't do anything other than to point up. And, and the point is, is that worship is, is upward focused. Uh, and then the steeple design is to remind us of that. So, so as, as the cathedrals and the columns are all pointing you upward, so as you enter the house of God, your heart is drawn upward. By the way, can I add another footnote? This is free. You don't care, but I'll give it to you anyways, because I went to cemetery to learn this, and you're going to get it whether you want it or not. Have you ever been to another denomination and noticed that things are a bit out of order? 
Let's say you're, you're at a Catholic church because they're easier to pick on. And in the Catholic church, you've got a, a, what you might call a pulpit over here on the side. Have you ever noticed that? Methodist church the same way. Have you ever noticed that and you thought, why am I going to put a crank in my neck when they could just move the pulpit in the middle? It's convenient for everybody, right? The reason is because in a Catholic church and in a Catholic theology, the word of God is not the center of focus. The altar is the mass. And so what you have in a Catholic church in the architecture way everything's set up is to emphasize what is most important. For, for Protestant Baptists in particular, uh, it, is, it is the word of God. Right? Because without the word of God, we, we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. But in a Catholic service, in a Catholic church, it is the mass where grace is dispensed as opposed to the proper understanding and application of God's word. Well, Solomon's temple was very much the same thing. The building was to draw the worshiper to see how small they were. So you have this massively large building, the, the largest of all of Israel, so that as you look at this large cathedral, if you will, you are very small. Do you still remember the first time you saw a skyscraper? If the answer is no, it's because you're a city person and you wouldn't know any better. Right. Um, grew up in the country. Our skyscraper was the county courthouse. And don't laugh at me. It is it is still the tallest building in town. Right. And you got to go through three stoplights to get there. And we don't know why. Uh, but I still remember when my uncle took took the at least my brother and I, maybe all three of us to Cincinnati. Maybe been the day we saw the Reds. I don't know. And we went and I remember we were in downtown. We were at the foot of this building. And I remember looking all the way up to the top of that skyscraper and I felt like I was falling. That was the scariest and the coolest moment of my life at, the, at that point, right? You're like, how in the world did I know I'm standing still, looking up, and yet I feel like I'm falling? At the same time, I don't like heights, so I don't like the feeling of falling. It was both and all at the same time. Solomon's temple was designed that way. It was beautiful to demonstrate the artistry of God. Its colors directed us towards creation. We've talked about that when we went through Exodus. The sacrifice directed us towards redemption. Its design uh, united all the tribes of Israel. Um, uh, giving hope to the Gentiles, reminder the worshiper of our need for a mediator. All of this was to set up in order to, 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 to establish that, that, that you are entering a house of worship. I remember several years ago uh, when, when we were serving in Breckenridge County, one of our members said something that kind of took me aback. Uh, Breckenridge County is a very Baptist and Catholic county. It's, it's quite unique. If, if you follow the river in Kentucky, say, from Louisville all the way down to Owensboro, you follow that river, all those counties are very Catholic areas. Baptists came through the, the mountains because we're cooler like that, whereas the Catholics came down a boat. And so you'll find Louisville is a very Catholic city, uh, but Bowling Green ain't. Right. Uh, in fact, some of the first churches were, were in the area of, of Bowling Green. Well, as a result, Breckridge County is very Baptist and Catholic. I remember someone saying to me, God made a comment about architecture and, and artistry and all this sort of stuff. And, and they said, maybe that's why when I go into a Catholic church, I feel closer to God. Now, they don't. They aren't actually closer to God there. But the feeling is, is the, the architecture and the artistry and the design is to, is to create this emotion of intimacy with God. Solomon's temple was designed in that way. And, and so it is in that context, Solomon wants us to know two things about reverence. The first is that worship must be a priority. Notice the language here. It's easy to pass it if you're not looking for it. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Sometimes the simplest words in the Bible carry the most weight. Let me give you two examples. One is in Ephesians 2, right? When, when Paul says, we are all by nature children of wrath. 
but God, right? That word but changes the tone and the tenor of that passage. The single word but. Uh, Charles Spurgeon did an entire sermon on that single word from, from verse 3 of, of Ephesians uh, 2. And let me give you another example that, that divides uh, uh, Protestant and Catholics, Matthew 16. On this rock I will build my church. And the entire meaning of that passage is essentially on the word this. Is the word this, is the antecedent referring to Peter? Or is it referring to his confession? You are the Christ, Son of the living God. We've talked about that. The answer, of course, is the rock um, because we don't have a pope. So, too, what we have here is a passage that does the same thing. Think about it. If I were to say to my kids, when you clean your room, don't forget to dust. What did I just communicate? You are going to clean your room. When is very different in meaning than the word if. Right? And so my expectations is you're going to clean your room, and when you clean your room, you're going to vacuum dust, whatever the, the extra explanation might be. So, too, in the Bible, we get this. Let me give you some fun examples we'll come back to. Jesus does this in the Sermon on the Mount. He'll say in Matthew 6, 2, when you give, which implies you go and give, right? It's not an option for us as, as believers. We, we have, charity is part of gospel living. Verse 5 of chapter 6, when you pray, pray like this, right? Uh, and that leads to the Lord's Prayer, of course, his, his exhortation regarding hypocrisy. In chapter 6, verse 16, uh, you can scratch this, this verse out of your Bible. When you fast, fast like this, right? Uh, you, can, you can just, it's probably a mis, uh, mistranslation of the Greek there. Uh, no doubt it's, it means when this generation fasts. You, you, you future Baptists in the 21st century America, that doesn't apply to you, yay obesity. But what, the, what the critic, but what is it that the critic says here? When you go to the house of God, following the return from Babylon, the, the Jews had two priorities um, uh, following that, 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 that 70 years of captivity. Of course, this is generations after this text. Their two priorities were, one, rebuild their home, and two, rebuild the temple. And in Nehemiah chapter 10, this is, this is uh, explained. It says, For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contributions of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. Note this. We will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect it. It doesn't matter if, if people are attacking us and accusing us and trying to destroy us. We will not neglect the house of God. When our Baptist ancestors moved to Kentucky, they, one of their top priorities when they finally settled was to build a house of God. And as such, they would have guards outside of the church on a Sunday morning to protect the people inside it from, from Native American attacks. In fact, on the way to Kentucky, they will pause every Sunday morning for a time of worship, though their lives were at risk and they were in unsettled areas. Why? Because worship was and should remain a priority. The problem for American evangelicalism for generations has been that worship has not been the priority that it should have been. A recent article it said the headline is, quote, record high, 51% of pastors foresee a decline in attendance after a pandemic. And let's be honest, it is more than 51% of, of pastors. And the longer this, this uh, pandemic continues, the, the more likelihood that becomes the case. 
And what would explain such a headline like that? The reality is that many are more comfortable standing in line at Kroger with complete strangers than we are sitting comfortably in a pew with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And for far too long, other priorities have have replaced um, reverence from busy schedules to office responsibilities to sleepiness, sports, and a short attention span. Think about it. If just 1% of the people whom we've invited to worship with us, who then said, I will come and worship with you soon, actually showed up, 1%. Where would we be in the church today? If that were true even in the middle of a pandemic, where would we be today? And then we wonder why our children grow up not seeing worship and our faith to be the priority we assumed that it would be for them. The real reality of humanity is that we naturally worship. Whether it be endless hours of movies and television shows or spending the entire weekend watching football or chasing after the next high, more wealth or more hours in the office, God created us as worshiping beings. We are made for worship, and as such, we must prioritize worship in our lives. And and as we prioritize worship in our lives, let it be true worship. The truth is, you are already, excuse me, we are already prioritizing worship in our lives. It is imperative we prioritize true worship in our lives. With that said, let us learn to worship with a pure heart. There is a real temptation to allow worship to transform into mere routine. We might say Mondays to Friday are for work. Saturdays are for, I don't know, sleeping in or golf, whatever it is we, our wives let us get away with. But Sundays are for Jesus, right? It's all, all part of the routine. And although the discipline of routine uh, may have value, to demote worship to mere routine is unfortunate. Again, go back to that headline that a record high 51% of pastors foresee a decline in attendance after pandemic. One of the reasons that very well might be the case is because of routine. We all know that you can have someone who can be a faithful member of a church for 80 years. You miss three weeks, you may never see them again. Now I'm exaggerating with 80 years. Uh, But uh, no doubt we've had many people come through here, faithful members for quite a while, and then all it starts is out of routine. What you have is, isn't that worship was the priority of reverence, but rather it becomes mere routine. I mean, you all know that I, I, uh, 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 I grew up playing soccer. Uh, I now coach in referee soccer, and uh, the YMCA is doing fall soccer. is very different because I don't know if you all aware there's an international pandemic still going on. And so things are a little different, and the uh, fields are smaller, the, the teams are smaller, whatnot, and, and all this sort of stuff. And uh, I, I confess to... Uh, uh, some of the people at the YMCA and, and, and whatnot, that every year before when I would ref or coach or lead the referees, I, I would have all my ducks in an order, right? I, I, so if I was the head of the officials, I would have a meeting with everybody and, and we'd say, this is your expectations, these, these are the rules, these, you know, I'd have it all laid out. If I was going to coach, I'd have a game plan, here's the schedule, parents, here it is, here's when pitcher day is, here it is, here's this, here's that, all that sort of stuff. This year, ah, whatever happens, happens. I'm going to say I am the least prepared for this season I've ever been, and I just don't care. Can I tell you why? I got out of the routine. I mean, soccer is, is at least twice a year. It's really about four times a year if, if you're really dedicated because uh, of indoor soccer in the winter. Some do summer soccer in the summer because they, they love, love to be sunburned. But in the spring and fall uh, is, is active times. And so by the time you finish one season and recover, it's time to start another one. 
And so, so you're always just going and going, right? And, and we haven't done that. Our season was canceled prematurely before we ever played a game in March, and, and we've not had it since. So season comes around like, oh, yeah, we got practice tomorrow. Should probably do something about that. And what's happened is we've, we've gotten out of that routine. I am guilty of this. And notice what it is that the critic says here, that, that um, to draw near is to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. What a term that is. I love that. The critic here is warning against mere routine. Offering a sacrifice because it's the day you offer sacrifice or because it's what everyone does on this specific day is not true worship. It is routine. Jesus warns against this, uh, standing in the line of the Old Testament prophecies, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Hosea. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If your worship does not lead to obedience, it's not true worship, as we will see later in this text. But going through the motions doesn't make one a spiritual person, but actually a hypocrite. Remember we looked at that strong word when earlier? Well, you look at all three of those examples of Jesus in, in chapter 6, and he emphasizes the, 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 the issue of hypocrisy. So when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet like the hypocrites. Don't get you one of those large, giant checks that are going to cost you like $500. You could have just saved the money and actually given to the people you're giving it to, but what do I know? So don't just go get you one of these large things. Don't make sure you post it online. That's, that's I guess, what it would mean today. Um, and don't, don't sound a trouble for everyone. When you give, don't give like the hypocrites. Don't do it out of routine. Don't give it out of, out of, this, out of because you want people to perceive you're spiritual. The same thing with prayer. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who will stand in the middle of the street, lift their hands in the air and say, hey, God, aren't I great because I'm praying to you? And everyone else thinks the same. Right? It's, not, it's not true prayer. Don't pray like the hypocrites. Or when you fast, right? Again, you can skip that. That's only Jesus speaking there. But when you fast, uh, don't act like you're fasting, right? Uh, don't, don't, don't look like a normal person. Don't be going around sucking your stomach in and say, how spiritual am I because I haven't eaten for three minutes, right? Don't do that. Don't do that. You see then that, that when we come to the house of God, we come with reverence, not in hypocrisy. And if you want to avoid hypocrisy, avoid mere routine. We guard our steps. We must guard against routine. Christ is worthy of our attention and reverence, is he not? Why don't we act like it so often? But it is just reverence that the critic speaks of here. It's also that of silence. Silence. We've talked about this before, and I know you've already forgotten, so I'll have to remind you again. The, the, the silence is, is, a, is a vital discipline of Scripture. First of all, let's look at that discipline of silence. Whenever we think of the spiritual disciplines, we probably think of reading your Bible and praying. That's it. right? If you got those two, you're good. And frankly, if you're doing those two, you're, you're a miles ahead of, of, of the rest of, of the pack. But yes, you should read Scripture, you should pray. Prayer is you speaking to God, or Scripture is God speaking to you. It always helped me growing up, and I think it's a helpful way of thinking that. Of course, there's more, more disciplines than that. Worship is one, right? It is a discipline, uh, but it is key to spiritual intimacy with, with Christ. Meditation is another one. Fasting would be another one. Resting is another one. And we, we looked at uh, quite a few several, several years ago. But one we never talk about is that of silence, because silence will not flow in the United States of America. We don't roll like that. Have any of you all ever been to, um, is it called Gethsemane outside of Bar, uh, Bardstown? 
You ever been there? It's a, it's a, it's a Americanized monastery, if, if, if you want. It's a, it's a fascinating place. Um, we obviously disagree with some of their theology, but, but uh, if, if you're ever bored and uh, uh, the governor won't let you do anything else, maybe you should try it. Um, a group of pastor friends of, 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 of ours when we lived in Brett County, we, we went there. And it's, it's more Catholic in their theology. Um, but uh, it's, it's a fascinating place because when you go, you must be complete silent. And I was uncomfortable because of that for the whole time. The monks there will, will do their chants and all that, and you're really just observing them. But everything is emphasized silence. And I, I noticed then that I don't like this because I don't like silence. After all, that's, that's the way most of us Americans are, don't we? We love distractions. We love distractions. In fact, uh, if, if you were to come into my office during the week when I'm in there getting, working on this or that, there's about a uh, 98% chance you're going to hear noise in my office. Uh, it could be a sermon on, on, on the text. I'd like to hear how this person's treated the text. could be music. could could be a lecture. could be a podcast. could could be anything. But there's going to be noise somewhere. I, I rarely go without noise because I love the distraction. Uh, that and I've subscribed to too many podcasts. But nevertheless, um, uh, Lewis warns us against this as he was considering the, the, the modern age. He writes in uh, Screwtape Letters, Screwtape, of course, being the uncle demon to, to his nephew. He said, music and silence, how I detest them both. Notice music and silence. How thankful we should be that ever since our father, that's the devil, entered hell, though longer ago than humans, reckoning in light years could express, no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of those abominable forces, but all has been occupied by noise. Noise, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless, and viral. Noise, which alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing scruples, and impossible desires. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We've already made great strides in this direction as regards to the earth. The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end. But I admit we are not yet loud enough or anything like it. Research is still in progress. I think Lewis was on to something before we even realized he was on to something. That if, if you want to distract spiritual intimacy with God, stay distracted from God. Turn the TV up a little louder. Put those earphones in uh, a little deeper. Again, this, this is me to, to, to a T. I'm easily distracted. You see me walking down the street, I've got headphones in my ear. We, we, we don't handle silence very well. I think Don Whitney, in his book on spiritual disciplines, I would highly recommend, says one of the costs of technological advancements is a greater temptation to avoid quietness. But we need to realize the addiction we have to noise. Consider the evidence of silence as a means towards deeper intimacy in, in Scripture. Jesus, for example, Matthew 14, 23, sends the crowds away to go up to a mountain by himself to pray and there he was all alone. He was all alone in silence and prayer. Likewise, in Mark 1, in the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there again, all alone. In Luke 4, when day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him away from going. Notice there, he chose seclusion over followers, seclusion over popularity, seclusion over the crowd. 
But it isn't just Jesus. Apostle Paul learned this in Galatians 1. Nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. I didn't go to where the crowd was. I went to get away. The Bible in general speaks of this. Habakkuk chapter 2 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Zephaniah, be silent before the Lord God. Psalm 62, My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. Isaiah chapter 30, For the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you are not willing. Or limitations, the Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. It is good that He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since He has laid it on him. For you who love the book of Revelation, remember when one of the seals is broken, what happens? There was silence in heaven, if I remember right, for an hour. You think you could sit alone in silence for an hour? Not when Netflix is on. Not when that new podcast comes on. Not when you get another notification on your phone. Not when the phone rings. We live in an age of distraction. You see, to listen is indeed better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Have you ever stood in awe of something and left you silence? Maybe it's the sunset. Maybe it's the night sky. Maybe it's art. Maybe it's just something beautiful. If that leads us in silence, why isn't God? I read a book several years ago. It was about uh, church, you know, uh, organizing a church, leading a church, whatnot. It was a ministry book. And the writer in there, it was part of the purpose-driven root beer theology, and um, made the point that the last thing you want in a worship service is silence because we, our people today don't have attention spans to handle it. I just can't find that in the Bible. So he emphasized that the second you're done with announcements, immediately start a song. The second you're done with a song, immediately start with a prayer. No pauses. That's just not consistent with Scripture. Second thing we, we, we need to mention here, we got to roll along, is the problem of mechanical worship. It isn't just that silence should be our lot, but that we should be careful with the words that we use. Isn't this striking this text? On the one hand, he says that we should learn to listen and be silent. On the other hand, he says we should use our words carefully. So we should speak and we should be silent. Both are true. The critic seems to be warning against mouthing the songs, mouthing the confession, and mouthing what we're told to mouth in the bulletin rather than expressing the awesome nature of God. I don't know about you, but when was the last time you, you really stopped and paused and considered the lyrics of the doxology? Now, we play it before most of our services here. Uh, it's one of the things that um, we, we've been doing that I, I really, really, really like that we do. There's something powerful about it. I grew up, we sang it before the offertory every time. To me, the doxology meant it's time to get out your wallets. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. Now let us stand and sing the doxology. Praise God from, right? And we start. And you, Now, let me give you some, some advice about how to run a church. The song before the offertory the worship leader needs to have everyone sing because it's easier to get in your wallet. I was taught that in seminary, not from a professor, uh, but for a guy who's probably not in ministry anymore. But, um, you know, that, that, that was always the joke. I mean, it was a joke. Uh, but then I started realizing we always stood up and did the doxology before the offertory. Um, I doubt for that reason, but 
you know how it goes. Anyways, but have you ever really paused? Because I was in college before I ever did that. Why? Because you just mouth it. Every week we're going to sing this. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, right? What do I care? It's offertory time. Offertory time means we're halfway through the service and then, then I'm halfway home, people. Have you ever really considered what it is? I mean, this is just one example we could use. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Some rich theology there. If we would do more than just mouth the lyrics. Maybe you're like me. And about 90% of the hymns we'll sing here or probably any other church I may go to, if it's a hymn or even some of the more modern hymns, I can sing them from memory. And, and it is a, a huge temptation for me to, to get distracted because of it. Whenever I was a, a student, and, and, and a high school student, later college student, uh, my mind would wander. I would sing every song and, and, and not miss a beat. But my mind would run off because my mind never shuts off. You've probably noticed that. That's why I'm, part of the reason why I struggle from insomnia. And, and so my mind would just start going. And I don't know where it's going. You had, may have to call the FBI to find it, right? There's a missing mind somewhere out, 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 out in the universe. And, and it's easy to do that because you get in a routine of familiarity. You can sing a song and not consider what it is you're actually expressing. One of the ways I, I prevent myself from doing that, you can do whatever it is may help you, is I try to... to look at the words as I sing them, knowing I don't need to look at the words as I sing them. Because if I don't do that simple little thing, uh, I'm chasing rabbits in my head all the while you think I'm spiritual. Now, maybe you're better at that than than I am. I'll confess my my weakness. But but think about it. Um, How insulting that is to God. It's sort of like the football game's on, or for me, a soccer game. And your wife comes up and starts talking. And men, how do you respond? Uh-huh. That's good, honey. I think it's a great idea, honey. Uh-huh. That's nice. Oh, she'll love it. Uh-huh. I'm actually being generous. It's just uh-huh, right? <laughs> I mean, you wives get away with anything if the game's on. Um, um, I'm just going to leave that there because I'm probably in enough trouble. But, but honestly, think about how insulting that is and why our wives never like us doing that uh, because, because you're, what you're communicating is this sport, this show, this movie, this distraction is of greater value in this moment than you are. So too, when we just mouth the confession, we just mouth the lyrics, we just mouth whatever it is the bulletin tells us to mouth is an insult to the God we worship. It may be mechanical, but it is improper worship. Be not rash with your words, the critic says here. Because a fool's voice with many words. Let our worship be more than routine or mechanics. Let it be a priority of, of reverence. This leads finally to that of obedience. We've said already that worship shapes our lives. That is to say, we become what it is we worship. To become a worshiper of God means we become more and more like him. To be a worshiper of an idol means we become more and more like it. If you don't believe me, I'll give you some some biblical texts and uh, I recommend a book. But if you don't believe me, just consider we as Americans think as consumers perhaps more than anything else. We're so used to options. We're so used to choices 
that we attach a consumeristic mentality to everything in life. And that applies to worship. You've heard me rant on that many, many times before, even this evening. And the reason is because we begin to look a lot like that which we truly worship. We worship wealth. And as a result, we, we need the financial security necessary. No wonder then that our federal government has a $25 trillion deficit. We become what we worship. This is consistent with what we find in the Bible. Let me give you, I got two examples here, but I could give you another dozen. There's a whole book on this. 1 John 3, 2, beloved, now we are children of God. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him. Notice what he just said there. He said, we are children of God. When he appears, we'll recognize him because we'll look just like him. We're becoming just like Jesus. If you worship Jesus, you become just like him. Or Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are right now being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord Spirit. Notice there that we are being transformed. We are becoming like that which we worship. G.K. Beale has a very helpful book. It's a biblical theology, so it's a bit wonky in some places, but it's helpful. Uh, I've got a copy of it here if if. You're not doing anything else during this pandemic. So G.K. Bill's book, uh, We Become What, what We Worship, says God has made humans to reflect him. But if they do not commit themselves to him, they will not reflect him, but something else in creation. At the core of our beings, we are imaging creatures. It is not possible to be neutral on this issue. We either reflect the creator or something in creation. His most famous line is, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. Worship becomes genuine, not just because of the experience of worship, but in the outcome of worship. This is something we Americans struggle with. What we want is the experience, not the benefit of it. So we want to say, I really enjoyed worship this morning. And if you say that, you should repent and go back into worship because you didn't worship. You were entertained. Again, we view the world through the lens of, of being a consumer. So I come into the sanctuary in order to get something rather than to give something. But you cannot separate uh, giving from worship in the Bible. But you can in American evangelicalism because we, we, we've been Americanized. And as a result, we are becoming more like our culture than more like our Savior. This is, this is a hard lesson preachers have got to learn. Let, let's be honest. You don't remember any sermon I've preached over the last three days. Anything before three days ago, you don't remember it. And that's if, if I'm lucky, right? Every preacher has to, has to realize this. A young preacher struggles with that. They think, look, if I study hard enough and I preach hard enough and I just give them the razzle-dazzle good illustration that makes them uh, uh, chuckle, they'll remember all three points, well alliterated and rhyme, right? They'll remember all that sort of stuff. And you won't. You won't. It doesn't mean that, that, that you're a bad preacher or anything like that. Let me see if I, can, if, if, if I can prove that this is okay. Can anyone tell me what it is you had for lunch following morning worship on February 23rd, 2020? That is a Sunday. I looked it up. I took the time to do that. You remember what you had for lunch that day? Anyone? I hope your anniversary is not on like the 23rd <laughs> because that would ruin my point. I don't remember what I had that day. You don't remember what you had that day. Let me ask you, did it sustain you for that day? 
course it did. The purpose of the food isn't that you would remember it. And you can take whatever Instagram photos you want. The purpose of the food is to sustain you, to help you grow, help you move forward. Worship isn't something that we get out of and entertained by, but something we put into that sustains us and moves us forward. Feed the soul the gospel, and it will produce gospel obedience. Feed the soul mindless entertainment, lust, greed, violence, or lies, and it will produce the same. You cannot separate worship from obedience because we become what we worship. When we worship intimacy, as we do in this culture, don't be surprised when we victimize children and destroy the home. When we worship identity groups, don't be surprised when we as a culture hate our neighbor because they look and act differently from us. When we worship politics, don't be surprised in our culture when we live in anxiety, fear, and hate because we are over a month away from your life being ruined all of a sudden. But when we worship Christ and Him crucified, don't be surprised when the Beatitudes are more than obscure texts. Blessed are they. Worship of reverence, silence, and obedience. If you're ever going to take the dive and read Martin Luther in his own words, can I give you a recommendation? The number one book you need to read is his book on prayer. We, we spent a Wednesday night series on it several years ago. Maybe we'll do it again. But if you really want to have fun with Luther, I want to recommend his table talk. What a table talk is, is that Luther uh, has spent so many years a bachelor, he eventually got married to a woman he didn't love. I'll just leave that story there and let you fill in the gaps for my own entertainment. Uh, but Luther was, was a people person. He loved having people around. And so he would invite all of his students after class over for dinner, but wouldn't tell his wife. I'm wanting you ladies to know that because it could always be worse. You're... Your husband could be an endangered theologian changing the world, right, <laughs> and have his personality. But what the students would do is that Luther would, would uh, sit down at the dinner table, and he'd just start talking. They'd ask him questions. He'd start talking. And Feldman finally said, look, we've we got to write this stuff down because Luther was different at the dinner table than he was in the classroom, less formal. And they were getting the good stuff, the good quotes. So they started writing it down. This is his table talk, and, and I, I've got an abridged version of it. Um, and uh, you, you can read through all the subjects, justification on the Pope, on, on the sacraments, whatever it might be. It's just tons of them and, and uh, all that. Sort of my, but, but my favorite table talk has to do with his dog. See? You thought I, w- I, didn't, I wasn't going anywhere with the whole dog-cat reference earlier. Luther was a dog lover. I don't know if he had a cat because no, no historian cares if he had a cat. I will leave immediately after we close in prayer. This is what we find in in the table talk. When Luther's puppy happened to be at the table, looked for a morsel from his master and watched with open mouth and motionless eyes, Martin Luther said, quote, Oh, if I could only pray the way this dog watches the meat. All his thoughts are consecrated on the piece of meat. Otherwise, he has no thought, wish, or hope. I think that's good advice for prayer. I think it's better advice for worship. Let's pray.